The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater commercial SUV with over 2,000 litres of cargo space, two-ton towing capacity and legendary four-wheel drive technology. MitsubishiMotors.ie It's Monday. It's the right hook, and it's news talk. George Hook here, and uh, I've got some of the things that really got me going today on today's programme. Sometimes, like, you really are sort of looking for a guest, and you can't find them, and you really want them to come on the programme. And I've been chasing my next guest for a while because I really wanted to talk to him. It is Michael McDool, formerly, of course, Minister for Justice and a leader of the Progressive Democrats. But now, Michael McDool, surprise, surprise, running in, in the Shannon. Why so? Well, um, as you may or may not re- recall, um, I got involved in the campaign to stop the Shannon from yeah. being abolished uh, a couple of years ago. And in the co- in that context, I met Fergal Quinn and uh, um, was closely cooperating with them. And more recently, he said to me that he was standing down and that uh, he, he asked me, would I consider standing? So at the beginning, I thought, well, you know, um, uh, maybe there are other people, but uh, on consideration, I decided, yeah, I'd, I'd love to be in the Shannon to make sure that the process of reform actually goes ahead. Because one of the things, and by the way, I'm not getting sanctimonious about this, but one of the things that uh, I have noticed is that uh, an awful lot of TDs who lost their seats uh, in the in the recent general election are considering standing for the Shannon. And uh, that's a fairly natural and well-known phenomenon. Uh, but if they are all going to stand uh, for the, for election, then um, is the is the is the reform of the Shannon going to be put on the long finger yet again? Uh, that's the one worry I have, and I think there has to be a champion of of Shannon reform in the Shannon uh, rather than allow it to slip back down the agenda again. Of course, lucky for you, an awful lot of these TDs who are trying to get into Shannon didn't have the luxury of going to University College Dublin, so they can't stand for the university panel. Well, one of the weird things, George, I found out, and I didn't know this until recently, that you don't have to be an NUI graduate to stand for the NUI um, um, uh, constituency. And now you tell me yeah, exactly. when it's too late. <laughs> it's too late. I was keeping it secret, George. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I envy the big lunches and the cars park space and everything. But, like, you have been at the at the pinnacle of politics as a minister in government, and now you're a very successful barrister. Isn't this a bit beneath you in a way? No, not at all. I mean, I, I believe that membership at the Shannon is uh, a real honour if you if you can attain it. And I'm looking at people like who have been members of the Shannon, Gareth Fitzgerald, T.K. Whittaker, uh, you know, W.B. Yeats, all of those people. And I'm not putting myself on the same no, level as them. Yeah. But I mean, I, I, I don't consider it to be uh, beneath anybody. I think uh, to be in the Oireachtas in any shape or form is a huge honour. And I loved being a member of the Dáil when I was a member of the Dáil. And uh, in in, uh, 90, in 2007, I thought, well, that's the end of all of that. And uh, that was my intention then. But uh, when Fergal asked me to stand uh, and told me he was retiring, then I said, right, I'll do it. Yeah, because you did leave politics like in a, uh, in a, a huff, I think it'd be no, fair I, to say. I, I wasn't in a huff that day. <clears throat> I was down in the, I came to the RDS to attend a, 
the final count and I thought I was going to be conceding gracefully and smilingly but unfortunately I was confronted with this mob of people shouting and booing at me and roaring at me and yeah. it was, uh, I, I, I couldn't physically get into the building unfortunately. Well I'd like to talk to you about getting into the building in fact mm. because we are seeing increasingly and I've had uh, people from the hard left on this programme saying that it's it's okay to prevent politicians going about their daily business if they are passing legislation that in effect they don't like. Now you're a Minister for Justice. Are you worried about that? Are you worried about the way protest is going? Yeah, I am. I think street politics uh, are, are nasty politics, to be honest with you. And whether they're at Donald Trump ra- rallies or out in um, in Tallow uh, with, with with Joan Burton, it's a nasty, uh, 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 unpleasant way of doing politics. We live in a very liberal, open democracy. And if you have a point of view, there are plenty of places, including this studio, to get your point across. Uh, and there's no need to... to, to um, to, to engage in kind of, uh, you know, semi-violent uh, surrounding people oh, I... and shouting at them. And just to give you an example, I saw pictures recently of Brian Cowan. He attended a, a commemoration ceremony in, Ar- in Arbor Hill and he was going back to his car, which he'd parked some distance away from the cemetery. And a group of people with their cameras already started shouting and roaring abuse at him as he went back to the car. And I said, you know, that is so sick, really. I mean, what's the point of that? All right. Now, let's get back to this channel because you're standing for it. Now, interestingly, you're in a good position to, to, to get a seat because three seats and two existing senators are stepping down, Fergal Quinn, as you mentioned, and John Crown, the oncologist. Yes. Only Rona Mullen will be a standing, uh, a sitting senator as such. That gives you a good shot at it. Now, when you were in Dublin Southeast, as it then was, and you climbed up the pole to put up yeah. your thing, you were getting publicity as such, which is the, the lifeblood of politics. How do you get elected when, like, all the voters or all these graduates who are all, o- all over the place, how yeah. do you reach them? Well, it's a, it's a complex process. The um, the NUI Shannon Register has over 100,000 people on it, which is the size of a, of a very large Doyle constituency in terms of votes. But each of them gets a, a, a paper sent out to them at their home, a, a ballot paper uh, and kit to send it back, you know, the envelopes and the declarations of identity. Oh, I see. And um, the problem is that an awful lot of them have moved on since the day they first registered. Unfortunately, the system is not one where um, uh, uh, somebody who's a, a university graduate is, almost, is automatically on the list. You're given on, your, on the day you graduate a little card. Um, to, to say you'd like to be on the NUI uh, register and of course nearly all of them go off and have a party the day they graduate and an awful lot of them miss miss, miss, okay. miss, miss all right. so there is a, there's a problem with the, with the system and it, it, sh- it should be improved because uh, you, uh, you know um, it, this system now this election is going to take place on the basis of a of a, a, a register that's already a year out of date. But of the people who are on that register, maybe 60%, maybe 60,000 will not, will simply not collect their papers because, again, registered post, there was a time when the postman knocked at your door and you were likely to be there. Now you, you'll just get a little chit. Most people will come home from work and find a chit that there's a, a registered uh, envelope available to them. At the and they won't office. follow it up. OK, that mm. makes it quite mm. difficult. Look, what about the current... I was reading it with great interest in your column on Sunday Business Post. We're, to use a great cliche, we're in uncharted waters. Yeah. What do you think? <clears throat> Where are we? 
Well, we are in uncharted waters because uh, for the first time in Irish politics, I mean, there has been a political earthquake. For the first time in Irish politics, the two main parties, which since the 1920s have dominated Irish politics in one shape or another, um, have between them uh, 26% of the vote each, which is just 52% of the vote. And they are the largest two blocks in the Dáil, but neither of them can, uh, with any other allies that are available, form a majority government. So the but I've just been talking about German elections, yeah. and you have the two biggest parties in Germany in coalition, isn't that so? That's right, yeah. So why can't we do that? Well, that, I mean, I, uh, that's, that is the outcome that I personally believe is the only viable outcome, because I don't think that it's reasonable for um, Fine Gael to uh, stand on the, sit on the opposition benches and support a smaller party, uh, Fianna Fáil, in government, or vice versa, really. And I mean... People are talking about, oh, well, we need a new politics and we certainly need to change how the Dáil is operated. And I'm delighted to hear all the good intentions which are now finally coming out after donkey's years of people doing nothing about it, myself probably included, so I'm not going to uh, go uh, go on the pedestal. But but the big advantage now, George, is that um, uh, in in there being a solid government is if they put together a programme for five years, if if they have new leadership of this government... If it's um, a government which is, uh, you know, committed to a program, that's what the people want. And the Sunday Business Post uh, this weekend did a a poll of what people wanted. And the majority of people want that. Only a minority, 20 percent, want a minority government. But the politicians, and uh, you were probably one of them sometime, always keeps talking about what the people want. Do you believe that 52 percent, the combined vote of Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, is... Um, that the Irish people saying this is what we want. Well, I think nobody I think, went into the booth though saying, "No, what I want is a coalition of Fianna Fáil and Fine no, Gael." And, and, and um, my, my good friend uh, Jim O'Callaghan, a new TD, was on the radio the other day with me discussing this exact point, and he said Fianna Fáil, you know, had gone to the doors and they never looked for a mandate to go into government with with Fine Gael. And, and I conceded to him that that was true, but they didn't go into um, they didn't go into uh, uh, to people's doors looking for a mandate. Uh, to um, to uh, to support Fine Gael from outside, or to have a new election if 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 they didn't like the way the, the people uh, divided up the seats. So it, uh, when you both of them presented themselves as parties of government, and the real issue is what is keeping them apart. And there's two, in my view, there's a kind of party self-interest, and uh, they're both looking over their shoulders at Sinn Fein and saying, "Do we want to?" Uh, leave them as the largest group in in the opposition. And, I mean, again, that's an exaggerated thing. The people vote really to get a government rather than to, cho- to choose who should be in the, in the opposition, on the opposition benches. And I would add to that that, I mean, even there would be 61 TDs outside FG and FF if they form a, a government together. And, and Sinn Féin will only have 24 of those 61 seats, so it isn't as if they will be the opposition. There'll be plenty of others there but with them. They, for the first time ever, you mentioned, and of course everybody does, about two main parties, but also, isn't this the first time that you will now have a dull chamber which reflects that, I think it was the original idea of the French Parliament, this idea of left and right. Isn't it the first time now? The left may well be split up, yeah. But there is now 
clearly a substantial group of people who believe in left-wing policy. Yes, this is I'd, not I'd, right. I'd say of the 61 non-Fine Gael and non-Fianna Fáil deputies, if you strip out a, a whole series of uh, non-ideological independents, if I can call them that, you're left with about 50 le- broadly left, uh, and uh, if you throw in people like the Social Democrats... But isn't this a good point, ultimately? Yeah, it's, it's not the end of the world. You know, the, you have to be, uh, the Civil War is over, and I mean... Uh, Except in this studio, it reminds you, but otherwise it's not. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, no. joke. <clears throat> you forgive the bad joke. Here's yeah. one, though. Um, I, I mentioned this in our election coverage, that the 1948 inter-party government was led by John A. Costello, not the leader of Fine, Fine Gael, yeah. who at that time, of course, was Dick Mulcahy, who wasn't popular with a lot of people. Yeah. Isn't it going to be very difficult for this new government, for Enda Kenny, who who the population have rejected in the election, to go forward as Taoiseach, surely? Well, there's two points about that that I would make. First of all, he didn't have a great election, no matter whether it was fair or unfair, but he didn't have a great election. And um, uh, the second point that you have to ask yourself is, uh, you know, is his party going to be told by another party who should be the leader? They're always, that's always a prickly sensitive subject. But allowing for that, I think that if there was to be a new government for five years, uh, I think most people would think, well, Enda should bow out now and let somebody else, a fresh face, uh, uh, who would be, uh, you know, a new a new um, uh, face, uh, lead up the government one way or the other, be it a rotating teacher or whatever, I think people uh, would, would prefer a change. And that's not to be dismissive of, of Enda Kenny. He, he's done what he's done, but he didn't have a great election. And some people call it a car crash election. He had a poor election. And uh, in, in the circumstances, if a new government were to be formed, I think it would be a disadvantage for that government if he was to lead yeah. it. Uh, have you thoughts about who's the best person to lead? Well, I mean, there are the obvious uh, uh, candidates. I mean, you have Leo and, and, and Simon Coveney and, and Francis Fitzgerald are the three most obvious people. And doubtless, I'm forgetting somebody very important. To somebody. Right. Okay. But, 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 but uh, I, I would say that um, Fine Gael, uh, should address its leadership issue and probably will in the next few weeks. All right. The the issue of an election, um, because if they, 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 they can't get together, we have another election shortly. Yeah. Uh, is that just simply out of the question? Everybody's talking about that we'd all go mad. Like, would all of us go mad at having to go down and vote again? Would no, we? I, don't, I don't think we'd go mad. But the one thing is that, I mean, the Sunday Business Post poll, which I was mentioning earlier about attitudes to the formation of government, it said that if you ran it again, you'd get more or less the same result, maybe a few less independence, okay. but that would be it. So, I mean, um, it, it, do, it doesn't appear to me that uh, there's a sort of a, a majority in waiting now that people have suddenly said, oh, we're all going to vote Fianna Fáil or we're all going to vote Fine Gael. I don't think that's that's coming down the la- the tracks uh, if there is another election. But uh, Harold Wilson ran a minority government and he couldn't get anything yeah. done. And then he went back about a year later in the election and he said, look, you've seen what we can do if you give us a majority. Now, I'm not sure they gave him a majority, but he yeah. was in a much better position for the next government. Um, isn't there a case for that, that if, if Fine Gael seemed the most obvious one to be a minority government, and then after a year or two years or whatever, they go back to the populace and they say, look, we've done a great job with our hands tied behind our back. Imagine how good we'd be if we had freedom. Well, you see, that might be a tempting prospect, but just remember, I mean, uh, if 
uh, they were um, they're not going to be able to call an election exactly when it just suits them. And I mean, uh, I don't think a Tala strategy is going to be on offer either from Fine Gael or from Fianna Fáil to the other party in government. And uh, the other thing is that, you know, I mean, they'll be looking slitty eyed. The opposition party, if there were one supporting the other from opposition, will be looking slitty eyed at the government. And if they see some issue on which they can foot trip them and call the elections favourable to them, they'll do it. Well, isn't that the point? Why yeah. is anybody talking about this when you have just simply stated the main reason why you wouldn't do it? Yeah, well, why is everybody talking about well, it? I, I think it is, um, I think two things. Psychologically, now, <clears throat> I know your politics, George, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I, I think Fianna Fáil, a, a lot of their activists have their tails up at the moment. They think they've been forgiven by the electorate. They think that, you know, that the, 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 the toxic brand period is over and that they are that, that they are on the up and up. That's their view. If you look at the uh, the opinion polls, they're still. Uh, you know, um, in in the mid twenties, and so are Fine Gael. So I don't think that's a, a huge um, uh, uh, indication that they should go to the people again. But um, I think that uh, the other point about about Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael is that on both sides of that divide, there is a huge um, kind of. Uh, both of them have always regarded the other as the, as one of the main reasons for their for, for voting for themselves. You know, I mean, they, yeah. they they need each other in a peculiar way. It's a kind of a symbiotic relationship, and. Um, I think that uh, what we're going through at the moment, uh, I, I was writing this weekend, I think it's a long education, self-education process where they are actually going through all the motions of selecting out, um, uh, you know, uh, possibilities and exploring them. And I'd say that in about three or four weeks, it'll become obvious that uh, that it's uh, that the, okay. only, the only deal is, is, is the fifth two percent. I was talking about German elections where three uh, provincial elections we've seen dramatic results. We have no government in Spain. We have a, a government supported by communists in Portugal, uh, Belgium. Uh, is all politics no longer now? Well, I think the politics of protest uh, have certainly come. I mean, even in Spain, Greece, uh, Germany now, uh, even in America, in a peculiar way, if you look at Bernie Sanders uh, support, which is uh, sort of coming from left field, which nobody would ever predicted that a man who called himself a socialist could be even even in with the shout at all. And the same thing is that uh, even on the other side, uh, Donald Trump, who I wouldn't be uh, attracted to at all. I think he sounds very dangerous, but he is he is also, um, you know, uh, surfing the wave of of the politics of anger. And, um, uh, you know, when you look back, it's hilarious now that there are European liberals who are now saying, bring back George Bush Sr. and Ronald Reagan. These were reasonable men. I mean, it's an extraordinary <laughs> turnaround. All right. Uh, well, uh, good luck in the standard election. It is Michael McDool, formerly, of course, uh, uh, founder of the... Uh, uh, progressive Democrats and uh, Minister for Justice and a whole pile of other things. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Welcome back to The Right Hook with George Well. Uh, we're all familiar with pharmaceutical trials because, of course, every time we hear of some new miracle drug, we hear it was first tested on mice or rabbits or monkeys. Then ultimately, it's trialed on human beings before eventually it gets a license. Uh, 
this, particularly in America, of course, is is delivered by the FDA. But 10 years ago, six healthy young men um, were part of a clinical trial that went badly wrong. Well, I'm joined by a survivor of the Northwick Park Hospital clinical trials. Ten years ago this week, it was Ryan Wilson. Ryan, welcome to the programme. Thank you for having me. You you might tell me what happened because, I mean, very few of us sign up for clinical trials. So, so how did it all start for you? Um, it was mentioned to me in a job centre while I was um, in a frictional unemployment. Um, it was mentioned as a quick way to, for essentially easy cash for little to no work. And at the time, it seemed very appealing. I applied, was called in. Numerous tests were conducted to make sure I was as fit as I was purported to be. And um, I came back some time after and had to sign a, um, a form to say I was happy to go ahead with the trial. It was a very detailed form, uh, and I found it um, quite bewildering um, at the time. So I just, at at that age, it was kind of, I was young, and I was going to live forever, sign my life away, was told that I asked, and actually I asked what would be the, um, what would kind of be the worst outcome from a doctor's opinion. And I was told that in no uncertain terms have I ever had a hangover, which I have, um, and it would be as bad as that. So I thought to myself, what, £2,000 for a hangover? Yeah, sounds great. But but you finished up, Ryan, with more than a hangover. What did you finish (laughs) up with? Oh, um, well, we're still ascertaining the damage now, 10 years on. Um, I'm still finding out what's, um, you know, what's wrong with me. And we still, we're still very far away from concluding, actually, the injuries that I've sustained and the long-lasting effects of said injuries. Well, what, what are the most obvious ones that, that, that we can see now, or, or can we see them, or are they um, internal? Well, the most visible ones would be my feet, which I've spent, uh, I've had a big psychological issue with exposing my feet. They, they they look completely deformed, um, and they cause me a lot of suffering. So I've spent a long time trying to get over this barrier, whereby I just cannot... I, I end up getting changed in um, showers in the gym, so nobody sees my feet. I'll sit by, you know, by a sunbed um, if I'm on holiday, and I will keep trainers on. Uh, so that's probably the biggest. Because, as I understand it, um, you had amputation, so you lost your toes. So clearly, uh, there's two things about toes. One, they're pretty, uh, particularly when your wife or girlfriend is putting red paint on them. But they have a very important role in terms of walking. So if you lose your toes, walking becomes very difficult. Is that the case for you? Yes. Um, to be honest with you, I wish it was just as simple as having my toes removed because the problems that I'm suffering from now wouldn't be as severe as they are. Uh, The amputations in regards to my feet were probably the least of the issues. It was the scarring and the muscle atrophy and the bone fragmentation that's in my feet now. So not only did I have my toes amputated, I actually had equivalent to half of my feet amputated on, on both sides, one slightly worse than the other. 
Um, and what about the other extremities? What about fingers? I had a few fingers amputated. Um, one of them I ended up self-amputating just out of sheer frustration um, because I couldn't get it wet at the time due to... it. I, effectively, I had dry gangrene, and if they were exposed to moisture, there was a risk of wet gangrene, which would require immediate surgery. So that was always a big worry, whereas if I removed them, there's no more dry gangrene. Well, Ryan, you don't know me, but people who do and know me, I tend to get very excited sometimes. Why are you so remarkably calm about this? Is it because it's been 10 years of pain and suffering and you've just got used to it? or it's No, it's a coping mechanism. Um, right. Really, I spend, there's moments in the day where I have to stop myself from panicking about the inevitability the potential inevitabilities of what I believe may happen or what has been told to me, what's been told to me may happen. Uh, So that is something that I have to keep on top of. And a way of coping with this whole issue is to take it in a quite a um, lighthearted way. Some would may argue that it's too lighthearted, but it's kept me where I go into where I am today. So and it clearly, I mean, you talk about changing in the shower or doing all the things to hide uh, the the um, deformities you now have. Um, but but presumably it's affected your your job's life, your family life, domestic life, everything. Yes. Well, it's funny, actually, because I originally went for the drug trial as kind of um, a signal to my uncle who lives in Dublin that I was worthy enough of, of taking on his plumbing business. I was also at college at the same time studying plumbing. I, I come from a family of tradesmen and, and women. So um, that it, was, it was basically to, to get a driving license. That was the main point of doing the drug trial. Um, and I was at college at the same time studying plumbing. So he basically made a gentleman's agreement with me. If I got a driving license, got a plumbing qualification, uh, go over to Ireland and effectively take over, take the reins of his business. <clears throat> so because of the drug trial, I basically had my whole life, everything that had been mapped out in front of me, it had been snatched from me. And there was no kind of new blueprint, no 2.0, how do we, you know, how do we remake your life in a new way? So I was kind of left abandoned to my own devices to figure out what to do, given a pile of medication, drug uh, painkillers and basically just told to get on with it. And over, I don't know, maybe, it was really the, the, the big kind of change was my son, who was born in 2012. He gave me a motivation to really prove to him that it, it, you, you shouldn't let adversity oppress you. You should use it as, as a leap pad rather than um, a ceiling. So I, I was getting into economics at the time because really to know about what happened to me I have to look at levels above, so I have to look at the politics surrounding it and the the, the economic side of it. And I had a, I was very very interested. I was really excited about learning these things. Decided to go back into education and finish my secondary education. Studied economics, and I'm currently at university now. So I've kind of had to I had to figure out a new way. I instead of using my hands to make money, I'm now potentially 
going to use my brain. Now, my guest is Ryan Wilson, survivor of a clinical drug trial 10 years ago this week, which is, if you've been listening, um, has destroyed uh, so much of his life through uh, the uh, deformities affected by his fingers and toes and feet and... um, also joining me is investigative journalist uh, Brian Deere, who produced a documentary on the trials for the Channel 4 Dispatches series. Brian, welcome to the programme. Thanks, George. It just sort of, uh, defence is the wrong word, but... In terms of drug trials, I I mentioned right at the beginning we had to go through the mice and the rabbits or or the monkeys or so on. Don't you at some point have to have drug trials in adults, uh, few, in order that the many may then benefit that we have a drug that is safe? So aren't drug trials, they're not going to go away. Aren't we going to have to keep them? Well, I think that's right. But if you look back the 10 years to this incident, um, a lot of people might have forgotten the furore which occurred around it, where Ryan actually spent two weeks in a coma. Uh, I think began, uh, even as we're speaking, 10 years ago, he would have been in a coma for two weeks. Uh, That kind of incident occurred essentially because um, the British government had decided they wanted to very consciously make drug trials quicker and cheaper Uh, for reasons of um, competitiveness, specifically with Germany. And the the government at the time had formed a compact uh, with the pharmaceutical and biotechnology industry to to allow this to happen. Um, So they they created a climate within which things were less safe. It's very much like what occurred with the uh, financial sector and the banking collapse, where, as a matter of policy, uh, there was a a culture of deregulation. And and what happened was this massive financial collapse, which everybody is still paying the price. Uh, Just a year or so before that was the incident at Northwick Park. Yes, you do have to have studies in humans, but there has to be some kind of um, uh, progression towards that. And in this particular case, the the drug in question was called a monoclonal antibody, and it was was essentially what it did is it it, it located a particular uh, protein, a receptor, on a particular kind of cell in the human body and switched it on. Um, and that was, the, that was the purpose of it. It was meant to, meant to assist with um, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, so they said. But in fact, I think they sure they really knew what they thought this, uh, this uh, drug was ultimately going to do. But they got from the position where they'd only identified and characterized, properly described, the receptor they were targeting for anorax, it was called CD28, but that's not important. They'd only identified that 12 months before they put the antibody into a human being, Ryan Wilson and five other guys. Now, that kind of, of, of rush uh, without proper studies to see what happens in, uh, in the test tube and then you move very gently perhaps into, and still controversially into certain animal species, I think you have to do that, and then you move on to humans. They just panicked their way through. Uh, and as a result, we saw what we saw 10 years ago. So the, 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 the swing, I think, has moved back a little bit from then, but it, there's always this pressure to get drugs onto the market quicker. 
And uh, arriving at the right balance is a very difficult thing, and in this case was the wrong. Well, um, it is interesting, Brian, because, I mean, Ireland is a country which has done enormously well out of pharmaceutical yeah. companies, created huge employment and profitability and so on, but this is the manufacturer, of course, of, of drugs already approved. But interestingly, it's got to be about 30 years ago now, we, we, we had a doctor here in Ireland to set up a drug trials company and it looked as if I mean the excitement was huge at that time it looked as if this was going to be a major industry and Ireland was going to lead the way in drug trialling in the world so clearly as you've talked about the Blair government got on the act and said you know we can do this but if we make it cheaper and easier and better then we're going to get all these companies flooding onto our shores Mm, absolutely now um uh, I obviously, for legal reasons, we're not going to talk about any compensation or legal deal that was agreed. But but um, we met, we talked to Ryan, but there were five others. Did the five other uh, people involved in the trial did they have similar experiences? No, Mr. Wilson was by far the worst affected, as far as we know. Um, and it's not entirely clear why that was. It's possibly because the response was dose-related. and He's actually quite a big man, uh, and I think that that's um, possibly the reason why he was given a higher dose or for some idiosyncratic reason. The whole problem with some of these drugs is that when you put them into people, you really can't be sure what's going to happen. This is, as I say, this was a monoclonal antibody targeted at a particular protein, a particular receptor. But you never know, and this is always a problem with pharmaceuticals, you never know what other receptors, what other parts of the body that the drug in question is going to move towards. I mean, that's happened with um, uh, a manufacturer famous in Ireland with their drug uh, Viagra, which uh, was originally intended for heart uh, for uh, heart disease questions, and uh, they gave it out to, uh, they tested it on uh, volunteers, male volunteers, and at the end of the study, they found that the volunteers wouldn't return their drugs, and they couldn't couldn't <laughs> sure. work out why the why the volunteers wanted to keep these drugs, uh, and so you get these completely idiosyncratic results where a drug for one thing ends up impacting on something else. Now that's not not bad news for Viagra users, but when it comes to a monoclonal antibody, you can have very very serious consequences. And the trouble always is if you, if you I think in a European context something needs to be done because uh, if you look at the size of Britain, the size of Ireland, um, if you're thinking about who's got the most immunologists, who's got the biggest infrastructure for, for, for safety testing and regulation and inspecting sites and what have you, you would think it would be the United Kingdom because it's so much of a bigger country. Um, but uh, increasingly, the complexity of pharmaceuticals is they're now uh, far more sophisticated in their, in, their, in their impact and they're far more quickly developed and the pressures on them, pattern lives and things like that, uh, the pressures on them, um, means that you do need a very, very vigilant regulator to make sure that uh, bad things don't happen. All right, Brian, thank you so much. Ryan Wilson is still with me, the survivor of that clinical trial. Ryan, thanks for sharing um, your your thoughts. But 10 years on, have all your questions been answered? Uh, I would say no questions have been answered. Um, I'm passed from pillar to post at hospitals, um, consultants, I find um, are in awe of the, my medical record and are very apprehensive of treating me. 
Um, I've went into emergency centers with flare-ups and been sent outside because nobody wants to touch me. So um, really, I'm almost like a toxic asset um, when I come into a hospital. Um, I, the answers that I get are led by my prompts, not by anybody else's. So really, I am my own investigator in, in regards to my body, which is quite disheartening because we're led to believe that the health industry can, you know, treat people and has all the answers. But unfortunately, there are anomalies such as myself. And at the moment, I'm finding that increasingly um, I'm being told there's nothing that can be done for, I would say, 95% of my conditions. And just to uh, kind of enjoy the slow decline of your life, basically. All right, Ryan, uh, thank you so much for joining me. Ryan Wilson, survivor of those clinical trials 10 years ago this week and investigative journalist for Channel 4's Dispatches series, Brian Deere. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie I'm joined now by the Director of External Affairs at the Science Museum in London. It is Roger Highfield. Roger, welcome to the programme. Hello there, George. Now, I keep telling you, wanting to tell you every week, that there is a very distinguished rugby club in Cork called Highfield. Well, so, a beautiful name. Where did they yes, get that from? Well, I mean, I'm, I think I'm going to talk to them, and you could sort of be the patron <laughs> or something, right? And if if you saw the way Highfield play rugby, they probably need a bit of scientific input anyway. <laughs> oh dear, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, why am I talking to you? We're talking about the ExoMars mission, which has just successfully taken off today from Baikonur in uh, Kazakhstan and is a European-Russian probe to investigate the Red Planet. Now, the interesting thing about this, Europe and the Russians aren't talking on uh, a a huge raft of issues, for instance, like uh, uh, Syria, like trade, like the Ukraine, heaven knows what. But, But science seems to trump all this, and they're all happily chatting together, are they? Yes, they are. And it's actually, I think it is actually very uh, symbolically important because um, you you can think of Mars as being like the kind of Bermuda Triangle of the solar system. I, I think something like half of all the probes sent to Mars have failed in one way or another. And in fact, the, the former Soviet Union and the Russians have actually had quite a hard time in getting successful Mars missions. You know, the Americans have done really well with various rovers and so on, and various orbiting probes. But um, everyone is really keeping their fingers toes and all dangling appendages crossed that this mission, ExoMars, actually makes it. Now, obviously, there's no humans on it because it takes a long time. Yeah, that's right. It should arrive there uh, in October, and uh, it consists of 
um, something called the ExoMars Trace Gas Orbiter, which you can think of as like a, a nose, an orbiting nose that's trying to sniff out evidence of life in the form of methane. I mean, whether that methane's made by bugs or whether it's made by uh, so-called inorganic dead processes, that's something they'll have to investigate. And then there's also a kind of prototype lander as well, just to get them to hone technologies for landing on the surface of the red planet. Now, I thought, even before all these whiz kid scientists got involved, I thought we were reasonably certain anyway that Mars was pretty uninhabitable, no? Well, I don't think so. I, really? I think actually, well, we, we've, we had a tantalizing um, hint that there might be life on Mars in the 90s when someone looked closely at a meteorite that had been blasted out of the surface of Mars and landed on Earth and thought they'd found evidence of little bugs. Now, that was really controversial, but the, the thing that keeps on um, tantalizing people is that we knew that Mars was wet a long time ago and there were oceans on Mars. Uh, so that's one prerequisite for life. We also know if you look at bacteria on Earth, they can eke out a living in the most inhospitable places like sort of damp rock, deep underground. So the feeling is, yeah, that, that light, Mars might be dead today, but there could be evidence of ancient microbial life there. And it might even be, you know, eking out a little existence somewhere on Mars. So, so there's this, you know, the, I think most scientists would say there's a fair chance of there being primitive life on Mars. Now, they are, they have got a sort of a, a, a golf buggy uh, that'll come off that thing and will go whizzing around picking up samples and stuff. But there's a suggestion that they're going to run out of money. Is that right? Well, that, well, the buggy part of it is the second phase of the mission uh, in 2018. And there is a little bit of a question mark over that at the moment, um, because the, you can see this as the kind of the warm-up act for that mission. Um, and, uh, but you're absolutely right. The, the, uh, uh, the 2018 rover mission is really important for all this. So let's hope they, uh, they sort out the funding difficulties in time for that all right um given that but like you can only live on mars though if you're in a suit and everything you can't actually stroll out if you did land there you couldn't just stroll out could you no, no. And in fact, I, I, there was that great film recently, The Martian, which uh, gave you quite a good insight into the into sort of difficulties. And in fact, you'll be heartened to hear that the uh, the hero of the movie ended up surviving on potatoes uh, pretty much uh, towards the end of it. So, uh, um, but it, but it did show how tough it would be to try to eke out an existence on Mars. And it's still one of the great ambitions. I mean, we've just closed our big cosmonaut show and the last um, part of that exhibition had a kind of red panel in the ceiling which was alluding to the, the dream of going to Mars and setting up colonies on Mars. That's still a big dream of a lot of scientists but we know that it'll be quite an epic endeavour. But, but I mean what you could do is you could 
and there have been a few films about this kind of thing, you could actually have, it would be like an aircraft hangar, but it would run for miles and miles and miles. So you would, would be on Mars, but you would never be out in the open air as it were. And you, oh, yeah. like, I mean, given that we now know you can have artificial grass and football stadiums and all this sort of stuff, you, you could eventually have some kind of community on Mars living inside all these hangars. Yeah, I mean, we 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 had, funnily enough, Buzz Aldrin uh, in the museum a couple of weeks ago uh, with Brian Cox, and uh, Buzz was talking about his hope um, for Mars colonies, and he talked about how you'd have to have uh, a constant sort of relay of resupply ships and so on, and how it would actually have to be um, uh, really an international endeavour. I don't think any yeah. one country could could do this alone. But we have, before you go, Raj, um, we have a perfect example of this, and it's Australia. And the trick would be we just send all the criminals to Mars. And who knows what <laughs> might happen as a result. That's a tantalizing and intriguing <laughs> we, could, we could just add a stroke empty wormwood scrubs and send right them all here. to Mars. It is it is a, a recurring theme of a recurring theme of many sci-fi movies having yeah. prison colonies in space and so on. Yeah. Actually, there's a lot of people. We had Tereshkova, the first woman in space, in the museum, saying how she'd, you know, uh, returned to Mars, and that there's interest in older astronauts for, to take a one-way ticket uh, <laughs> to Mars. So okay. there we are, George. Why don't you retire to Mars? How about that? Yeah. Okay. If, uh, I think I think the golf ball would. Try Travel further, so it could be really interesting. <laughs> All the par fives would be in range. All right, Raj, thanks a million. Roger okay. Highfield, soon to be the patron of Highfield Rugby Club in Cork, Director of External Affairs at the Science Museum in London. Raj, thanks so much for joining me. Great to talk to you as ever. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie All right, uh, welcome back. It's The Right Hook with uh, George Hook and I'm going straight now to uh, Berlin to Kate Connolly, foreign correspondent for The Guardian in Berlin. Kate, welcome to the programme. Yes, hello, hello, George. Yeah, good to talk to you again. Look, we're not very familiar with the German system, but we there was an election on Sunday, the equivalent of sort of our local elections, but these are for regional parliaments. Um, first of all, what kind of results did we get? Well, um, what we had, I mean, the, basically one in five Germans were eligible to vote, 12 million Germans. Um, so it was sort of being seen as a bit of a referendum on Merkel's uh, refugee policy. And what we had were um, very big losses for Merkel's CDU um, and also for the Social Democrats. Huge gains for a uh, far-right or right-wing anti-migrant. They have been given different names, a party called the Alternative for Deutschland or Alternatives for Germany. So really, the Republic of Germany has been really completely shaken up today um, by these results and um, and also uh, sort of quite shaken by the um, the success of this party that everybody thought it was founded three years ago. Um, everybody thought that it would um, die a death after just a few months. And in fact, it's now risen to in one state, it got 24 percent of the vote. 24 uh, percent of the vote. What state was that as a matter of interest? 
That was in Saxony-Anhalt. Now, that is uh, part of former East Germany. Um, and uh, it basically, it was said uh, by the analysts um, of, of saying, uh, analyzing the results today that um, these were not people who had voted for uh, the parties before. They they were voters who really hadn't voted ever before. Um, and that was where they'd, fa- they'd found in this party a, a place where they could really vent a lot of their frustrations. Um, uh, there's what, the big gripe, obviously, uh, amongst people, you can imagine, is the refugee crisis. A lot of people feeling they haven't been consulted about it. Um, but at the same time, the AF Although it's a um, turned into a sort of anti-refugee party, if you like, it's also a place where people can vent their frustrations about low pay, about all sorts of um, fr- frustrations. They feel their vo- voice is just not being heard at the moment in the German parliament. Now, um, Kate, you're the foreign correspondent for The Guardian in Berlin. The, the interesting that they got 24% in Saxony, which is, as you said, formerly East Germany, even allowing for the reunification, there's quite a difference in attitudes between former East Germans and former West Germans, isn't that so? Even still. Yes, there are. And let's not mistake this. This is Saxony-Anhalt, which is different to Saxony, which um, has its as its capital, Dresden, where we've obviously had a lot of focus in the last few months because that's where the Pegida movement has um, had its roots. Um, but um, indeed, there are very different attitudes. There, it's been seen that a lot of the anti-migrant, um, anti-immigrant feeling has—it's been a lot stronger in Eastern Germany, where there are many few foreigners than in other parts of Germany, um, and where a lot of the attacks that we've seen on asylum seekers' homes over the last few months—they've um, been uh, most in, in in the former East. Um, at the same time, um, it's said that there's a lack of uh, people have a lack of allegiance to political parties in that part of uh, Germany, in which uh, case it made the AFD um, a party that people could really um, feel drawn to where they perhaps weren't in other parts. At the same time, the AFD has also done very well in the two other states, coming in uh, with double digit uh, wins in both uh, um, Baden-Württemberg and um, the Rhineland Palatinate state as well. But, but Kate, I want to stay with the East for a moment, if I may, because the main opposition of Merkel's plans may actually come from the East. Um, I mean, you've got to be, if you're over 20 years of age, um, then the, the huge sort of formative part of your life was in, um, part, you were part of the Soviet bloc, the Stasi, all the things we know so much about now. That has to create differences uh, of attitude. Now, it it would be very simplistic, I presume, to sort of use the word Nazi in any of this conversation, would it? Uh, I think so. I mean, it's often, you know, there, there, as I said, there are many labels for this party that has been called anti-migrant, anti um, refugee, anti-Islam. Um, it's been affiliated with the Pegida movement. This, 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 this group of people who meet every Monday in Dresden uh, that we've heard a lot about. Um, they, the, the party, tries to distance itself from them, but there's very, very clear links. If you try and draw a graph and work out who belongs to whom, they're, they're, it's quite easy to make connections between the two of them. And uh, I think that um, it could be said, you know, the, the Berlin Wall um, uh, came down in 1989. Um, more than 25 years 
years later, there's still an awful lot of resentment amongst people in the East who maybe people who are the age of 40 upwards, who've maybe, um, they feel that they never got the real advantages uh, from the reunification. And they feel that things like their their, their uh, wages are lower, which is, is true that their uh, pensions are lower, um, that they haven't uh, inherited, for example, like West Germans have. So there, uh, there are these deep disgruntlements. And then when an issue like the refugee crisis, which of course is, is going to profoundly change Germany, um, when that happens, um, that becomes almost like a um, the test or the the the, uh, the issue on which um, all their anger can be let out because it's a sense of other people are coming to Germany, getting the advantages that uh, they uh, don't have and don't feel that they um, will have, even though politicians are always saying to them, we're doing our very best for you. So it's not so much that they are resentful of uh, foreigners, because a lot of them have never had any contact with them. Uh, it's more um, just a general um, sense of disillusionment with the political system um, and discontentment also with uh, their own lives and the fact that they're having to strive to, uh, you know, to survive. Sure. Thank you so much, Kate. Kate Connolly, foreign correspondent for The Guardian um, in Berlin. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Now, the story of the weekend and, and particularly yesterday, there was a big report in the Sunday Business Post the suggestion that 200 Dublin families face eviction uh, in Terrellstown in West Dublin. And the the um, rather emotive phrase, vulture funds, was used. Well, I thought um, we should try and find out what happened. So I'm delighted to welcome to the program the director of development company Twinlight, Rick Larkin, who is the company linked with these evictions. Rick Larkin, welcome to the program. And uh, I'd like to hear your side of the story. Okay, well, thanks uh, for having me on, George. I appreciate the opportunity to clear up a few misstatements by a few media outlets. First of all, there is not 208 uh, families getting evicted. There's 103 houses in uh, Tyrrellstown that uh, we asset manage. Uh, of these 103, 40 of them have been told that their leases are not being renewed at the end of their term, which is anywhere from three to uh, eight months from now. Um, this has been done so that the owner of these properties can dispose of them uh, sell them on to families who are looking to, to buy and so that it can exit the rental business altogether, which is something it has been uh, planning to do since 2014. Now, is- yeah, okay, Rick, I, I mean, um, I'm, I'm delighted to have your views. And, and um, the, the point about this is it's not actually you know, necessarily about your uh, company, Twinlight. It's about all companies who are involved in this issue, that when... Uh, companies got into difficulty, which I presume happened to you. When when you got in difficulty, the bank then said, "Well, look, uh, we we've got your loan, or or you did, or somebody did, sold the loan on to somebody else." Um, it, it was always a possibility, therefore, was it not, that this would happen? And uh, in a way, the media. 
should have made a bigger case of that at that point as to what was likely to happen. Because that was always likely to happen, was not. Well, I can't speak for anyone else's scenario, but in, in ours, um, the fact that Goldman Sachs bought this loan has nothing to do with our decision to sell the properties. We were planning to do this prior to Goldman Sachs acquiring the loan. Um, they did so in the middle of the process, and uh, they have no involvement in this at all. We have a, a long-term... No, uh, yeah, sorry, Rick. I mean, just because people don't understand the machinations of, of banking and so on. At one point, you sure. owed the Ulster Bank, you yeah. know, uh, $89 million or whatever. Now you own Goldman Sachs. I mean, you've, you've, in effect, traded banks in terms of loan. Isn't that right? Just owe your different bank. Yeah, the numbers are wrong, but the the principle is correct. All right, okay. Well, uh, the the so you're a different bank, and the bank want the money back, and the only way you can pay the bank well, back well, is by selling case, the houses. Sure, no, in this case, that's not the case. The bank okay. don't want their money back. The bank oh. only make money by having their money lent out, where we're paying interest. To them. Oh, right, okay. But so, you don't you like, don't want to pay interest like like the rest of us. I mean, well, nobody. Our, no, <laughs> I mean nobody wants to pay interest. I mean, it doesn't well, make sure, sense. Sure, we could get away without having yeah, any interest. That's and have what I mean. That yeah. would be, everyone wants that. Yeah. But I mean, we we have a we have a business there that we found ourselves in after two thousand and eight because we had a stock of housing in our development business that couldn't be sold. But it was never our intention that that would become on and be our business. We're house builders. We're building in Dalky at the moment, uh, uh, out at, at Cunningham Drive, and we're building in in, uh, in Balls Bridge as well. And, you know, house building is what we do. It's not property rental. Um, so we're getting out of it. I do know there's a wider issue at play there with uh, a lot of uh, large funds coming in and buying pools of loans, and particularly buying pools of mortgages, uh, where people might not necessarily realize that all of a sudden, you know, PTSB or whoever they borrowed their money off uh, suddenly has been replaced by, you know, XYZ Limited uh, in the Cayman Islands. And for them, that's a very difficult scenario. For the business world, this is how it is in other countries. I mean, this has been going on for a very long time. It, it's relatively new in Ireland, but it's certainly the norm yeah. in Europe and in the UK. But but the point about it really is that, that what this, uh, like you've been in the eye of the storm, but what this really says is that our rental sector, by and large, gives um, the the renter no real security. Unlike if the renter were in Germany or somewhere, they'd have some kind of um, uh, security of tenure. You don't have yeah. it none. So therefore, when the no. house is sold, that's what happens to the person who's renting. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And a lot of people have been calling for uh, tenure to be brought in here so that people can, can have long-term rentals. And it's probably an area of legislation the government, if we do ever get a government, need to look at. But I think it's also important to point out that in markets like Germany and you know, like France and Austria, where buying a house to live in is definitely not the norm, I think their home ownership rates are around 40% in Germany. So it's definitely in the minority. Um, they have a much different uh, attitude uh, than we do. And it's not as simple as just saying, well, you bring in tenure here and then people can stay in rent accommodation as long as they like. That's fine. But when you do that, on the other hand, it means that the supply of rotating housing stock through the economy is going to be less. 
because some people are going to choose to stay in rented in homes for, but for 20 years. In, in, in the relation to the specifics then of you as director of Twinlight, the development company that, that is trying to sell the houses, um, yeah. you, 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 you've written to 40, but ultimately you're going to write to 100 houses if you sell, because you're going to try and sell all the houses. So we are, we are talking about 100 families. Who, well, that's I, I mean, not uh, necessarily true. I mean, we, we, we may do that, but right now we've written to 40. We may sell the balance of the houses to another investor who wishes to keep tenants in them, and in that case, the tenants will remain. Um, All right, but uh, but but I mean, forty families. I mean, we're only we're only playing with numbers. Then we are talking about forty families, who and I'm not going to use any kind of emotive language. We are talking about forty families who will be rendered homeless unless they can find another house to rent. In a, in in at a time in Ireland when renting properties is well nigh impossible. That is true. Well, George, I don't think it's fair to say that they will be rendered homeless um, unless they can find another property to rent. I mean, everybody is going to be rendered homeless unless they, they manage to stay in their home. So that's just a truism. I mean, at the end of the day, people moved into these houses, some of them less than a year ago. The rental market has been uh, chaotic in the last two years, simply down to the lack of supply. So the rents that they're paying are way above what they would be paying were they to buy the property. No, and Rick, that's yes, why there's I demand agree. to buy the property. No, Rick, um, the point, and I deliberately avoided using emotive language, but but you did say it was a truism. In other words, there's no other words to use for it other than they are out of their home and they must find another home at a time when it is extraordinarily difficult. And, uh, like, why I asked you to come on is because... Uh, this isn't the best media coverage that you've ever got, I would venture to suggest. And therefore, the thing is, we people also have to understand that there is a mechanism here that you're the guy who has to sell the houses to pay off the debt, and there are other people living in those houses who are renting them who have no ownership or security. So this, to be honest, isn't a problem. Isn't a problem of the making of the people who rent the houses, or indeed, it's not a problem of the making of your company, Twinlight. It is a problem of our appalling governance on the property issue over a number of years. You're absolutely right. I mean, the the market. Uh, the housing market in Dublin is, is, is a complete disaster. It's been that way for several years. Um, and there has been next to nothing done uh, by the last government, uh, or even the one before that, even though they were only there for a year or two of the crash, to actually address it. Um, you have a massive supply shortage. That's not, I mean, nothing has been done at all about that. Even NAMA's best efforts to go and build some houses, and I know that they are trying to do that, is being met with massive resistance in the planning process, um, you know, the whole way down the line. So at some point, we need to start having a conversation here in Ireland about do we want to solve this, this crisis? And if we do, are we willing to actually go ahead and start changing some laws to make yes. it easier for all the players okay. to start delivering housing? 
Now, we in, in, in the media rather pride ourselves. Uh, we don't always do it, but we, we pride ourselves on getting things right. Why do you think that the Sunday Business Post reported more than 200 families were facing eviction? The Independent suggested 103 households, but you've already confirmed that there are 103 houses in this package, if you, if you know yep. what it is. And then the Irish Times says issuing of notice to 60 families, whereas you say you've only issued uh, notices to 40. Uh, wouldn't it have been like, shouldn't somebody have telephoned you and asked you how many notices you're sending well, out? Yeah, sure. And the, the Sunday Business Post did phone us uh, last week. I did try to go back to the journalist uh, in question several times during the week, but I only had a landline number for him. He didn't leave a mobile. Um, I didn't hear back from him. He spoke to one of the directors in the property fund on Friday who gave him the the story and the correct figures, and they went to print, and that was the last we heard of it. All right. Um, the, uh, there is no doubt that there'll be lots of people who want to buy these houses, I would think, given the current state, the market, and Ireland. Yeah, a lot of the, the... I mean, we have agreed the sale of several of them already, but most of those are actually to the tenants that are in situ. Um, so those people have come along and said, well, look, we wanted to buy our house anyway, so this is all okay. good. And in that, that case, we don't market the house. We just agree a price directly with the tenant. And, all right. You know, they, they go in and that's it. But um, outside of that, yeah, things are okay. Like, the problem you have is at that end of the market, it's actually quite tough for people to get mortgages because of the central bank rule, which is, okay. again, a totally regressive thing that's been done uh, that primarily affects lower-income people who, right. you know, are, are struggling to get the, the seven or 8000 extra for a deposit. All right. So, Thank you for joining yeah. me, Rick. Sorry, we're out of time. I'm sorry about that. Director of Development Company, Twinlight, uh, Rick Larkin. Well, thank you for listening to that digest of news from the Daily Right Hook. But, of course, you can hear the full version in all its uh, excitement between 4.30 and 7 every day, Monday to Friday, here on News Talk. Do take care.